And our sermon text is John 6, 60 through 71, which is on page 580 of the paperback Bibles. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you was a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we are going to finish out this dialogue that we've been having the last few weeks where Jesus mentions that he is the bread of life. And um, if you were able to pay attention while we read it, you might have noticed that there's a lot of drama in this passage. It's kind of overwhelming, honestly, if you think about the scene. At the beginning of John chapter 6, just you know, a few verses ago, Jesus had thousands of people following him. Thousands of people hanging on his every word, interested in what he had to say and what he was going to do next. And at the end of our passage, hardly anyone's left. People have walked away. People who were enamored by Jesus' miracles are now no longer interested. The passage starts with crowds that are called disciples. This whole crowd, they're referred to as disciples, and the passage ends with the sound of footsteps, thousands and thousands of footsteps turning away and heading back to their homes. This counts a, a powerful one, and for a few reasons. In one respect, we have seen a version of this story play out in our own context. This week, you may have seen that the Gallup organization released new statistics that said four of the five least religious states in America are right here in New England. It's Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, um, and New Hampshire. Those are, are four of the five. In New England, a place that was once known for, for being a, a Christian place. But if you look at those numbers, what, what we realize and what researchers will tell you is what, what seems to be happening with these shifts in, in demographics and statistics is not that, by and large, our country is becoming more atheistic, but there is a rise of this group called the nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, right? It's the nuns, the people who have no affiliation. Um, and so what that means for us is that people who were once nominal, maybe, people who once were religious people, the kind of people that would go to church on, on Easter, 
and call themselves Christians, maybe their parents were Christians or something like that, those people no longer want to be called Christians. They're happy to be known as none of the above. I have no affiliation. Now those numbers, when we see that a place is becoming less Christian, if you're a Christian, that might scare you. But what this passage tells us is that the rise of the nuns could actually be a very good thing for us. It could be a very healthy thing for the church. Because it means, just like what we see in this story, uh, there are less people who think they follow Jesus when they really don't. And another thing that makes this passage helpful for us, before we dive into it, is this is a passage that teaches us what the difference is. It teaches us what is the essence of a true disciple of Jesus. In this passage, one of the, the climaxes is when Jesus turns back to the twelve after these crowds go away, and he says, are you going to leave as well? And I think that's the question for us. That's an opportunity for everyone in this room to consider, do I want to follow Jesus, or do I want to go away? What, what does it mean, though, to follow Jesus? What does it take to be a true disciple? Well, that's what we find here. That's the answer we're going to look at. First, I want us to, to look at this passage and see what marks a true disciple. What, it, what characteristics are true of real disciples? And then secondly, what is the cost of a true discipleship? What does it cost us to be a follower of Jesus? And then finally, why do we want to do that? What is the reason for being a disciple? What is the reason for true discipleship? So that's where we're going to go. The marks, the cost, and the reason. All right, the marks of true discipleship. Last week, you might remember, uh, I got to preach on one of my favorite subjects. One of the things I'm, uh, I just love to talk about, the assurance of salvation. Do you remember verse 37? I said, uh, we, read, we read from it, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Remember that? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Last week, we looked at Jesus' promise that anyone who comes to him can rest easy. That everyone who calls them, everyone who follows Jesus need not fear. They, they don't need to fear that they'll be cast out because we're saved by grace. And because we're saved by grace, that means we're secure. It means we don't get to boast because we didn't do anything to earn it. And it means we don't have to fear that we're going to lose it. That even in our worst moments, even in the moments of our deepest failure, if we really are in the family of faith, if we really belong to Jesus, we belong to Jesus. If you're in, you're in. But this whole chapter, even that part of the chapter, has been building ultimately to this point. It's been building up to this moment because John wants to show us that there is a difference. There is a difference between being a follower of Jesus and just being somebody that's hanging around him. There's a difference between being a true disciple and just being in the crowd. In other words, what we want to see here is that the world is not divided into two groups. It's not divided simply into the people who follow Jesus and the people who reject Jesus. But actually, within this group of followers, there's another category. There are true disciples and there are false disciples. Within that group of believers, there are both true disciples and there are false disciples. Remember how the story started? Can you remember a couple weeks back when we looked at verse 26? It was, it was the beginning of this discussion 
All these people had left the feeding of the 5,000 and they had come across the sea to find Jesus. And Jesus tells them in verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. He tells the whole crowd, you're only here because of what I can give you. You're only here because of what you can get out of this. You're not here for your eternal needs. You're here for something that I can give you right in this moment. One type of false discipleship is just that. It's coming to Jesus for what you can get from him. Now part of the benefit of that Gallup stuff I was talking about, part of the benefit of living in a society where being a Christian isn't all that popular anymore, is that it, it, it minimizes some of this stuff. It's, it's not a huge deal. You don't get a huge social benefit in, in Boston from calling yourself a Christian anymore. But there are still some places where that's true, right? Even right now as we watch the political scene unfold, politics is still a realm where claiming yourself to be a Christian can get you some things. I think maybe I'm particularly sensitive to this as a pastor, but, but I have just been beside myself this week as I've seen you know, pictures on, on Twitter from politicians in prayer circles before they go out to their, their primary. I'm not upset that politicians are praying. I'm just wondering why they're taking pictures and sending it out on Twitter, right? Or, or politicians who take Bible verses and then use them in a way that, that seems to say, God's telling you to vote for me, right? If you're a Christian, this is what you're going to do. Every four years, we see these politicians that, that become so religious all of a sudden, are very happy to tout their faith. Well, that's false discipleship. Coming to Jesus just for what you can get out of him. Because these politicians, right, I don't know the, some of them I'm sure have genuine faith, but I know a lot of them are just coming because Jesus can give them votes. They don't really mean it in their hearts. They're not really taking it seriously. They're just kind of following the crowd and going where the crowd goes. That's one kind of false discipleship. But there's another category that this passage is really more about. It's a type of false discipleship that Jesus brings up a lot, not just here. It comes up all over the Bible. Um, If you look in Matthew chapter 7, probably one of the most famous passages, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says there is this category of false disciples who think they are real disciples. They know they're not, they're, they don't think they're just in it for what they can get, but they, they think that they really are disciples. And why do they think that? Well, according to that Matthew passage, it's because of what they do. Did I not do this in your name? And didn't I do this? And didn't I behave this way? Well, we would look at this and see that these are people who are going through the motions of Christianity. And Jesus anticipates that there's going to be a lot of people like this. That there are going to be whole classes of people like this who have lived their lives behaving in a very certain way but have never actually known Jesus. They've lived these 
Christian-looking lives, but they don't have any idea who Jesus is. How is that possible? How can, how can you know? I think a good illustration of this is in the world of sports. If you ever have played on a team of any sort, um, you know that you can have all the talent in the world at your particular sport, but if you don't have heart, you'll never be great, right? And likewise, you, you can have just a very small amount of talent, but if you've got a lot of heart, you can be a pretty good player on the team. When I was in high school, um, I was on the football team. But I'll, say, I'll tell you what, I didn't have any heart. I didn't love football. The only reason I think I joined the football team was because when I came to high school, I said, I don't think I want to be a nerd anymore. <laughs> so I'm going to join the football team. They don't have cuts. <laughs> so I played. I played on the team. I was on the team. And I would go to practice and I'd do all these things. But as school went along, as things got harder, I, I decided I'm ready to quit. And I told the coach I wanted to quit. And he said, well, you're you know, getting pretty close to graduation. Just stick it out a few more weeks and you'll, you can make it. And so I did. I stayed on the team. But during those few more weeks, I went to practice. I showed up at the games. I looked like a football player. But my heart wasn't in it. I, I had no heart. If anything came in, you know, if football started to cost me something, if it was going to threaten something I really wanted to do, I would have dropped it instantly. Now, let's compare that to a real football player, right? Tom Brady. I just read this article from Tom Brady. They interviewed Tom Brady's dad this week. And he said, Tommy just doesn't done just play football. Okay, I just assume that's how he talks. I've never heard him talk. <laughs> he, says, he says, Tommy just doesn't done just play football. Tommy is a football player. It's not a July to January or February endeavor. He loves two-a-days. And that started for him last week. That's two-a-days from January 20th to next February. And he's already got a clock counting down to the next Super Bowl. Right? We've heard this. We've all heard this about him. We've all heard that he goes to bed at 8.30 at night, even now, to get ready for the next season to preserve his body. He is all about football. Football is his heart. It's his life. It's, his, it's, his, it's what gives him purpose. It's what nourishes his soul. It's his food. It's his drink. That's the difference between following Jesus and just being around the church, right? You can play the part of a Christian and not be one at all. Second Timothy, Paul says, it's, it's somebody who has the appearance of godliness but is denying its power. Or the way Jesus put it just before this. He says, My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He says true disciples are people who find the nourishment of their souls in him. They're people that, that the love of Christ drives them. In other words, you can look like a Christian on the outside. You can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can do all the right things. But the mark of a true disciple is someone who abides in him. The mark of a true disciple is not what you do, but is who you are at the core. 
So that's what it looks like to be a disciple, but there's a cost that's associated with that. So this is the second thing I want to talk about, the cost of true discipleship. What will it cost you to have Christ driving your life? Well, verse 60, it says, When many of the disciples heard what Jesus was saying, when they heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Don't misunderstand. The crowd gets what Jesus is trying to say. At this point, it's making sense to them. In fact, this is probably the first time anything Jesus said was making sense to them. We can tell that from this moment. How do we know? How do we know they understood what he's saying? Well, it's because they they got offended. Jesus asks them, do you take offense at this? When we start to understand the gospel, it should be our first reaction to be offended. The gospel is offensive. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. Not just in the book of John, right? We see it all over. Do you remember the story in Matthew where John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the guy who was preparing the way for Jesus. He was the prophet that was proclaiming that the Messiah was going to come. But John the Baptist, he gets arrested, he gets put in jail, and as he's in jail, awaiting what will eventually be his execution, he sends out his followers to ask Jesus some questions. See, John the Baptist thought Jesus was the Messiah who was going to come, and he was going to conquer Rome, and he was going to set them all up, and everything was going to be great. But as he watched Jesus' life and ministry play out, he got really confused. And so he asks the, Jesus, are you the one who, who I was meant to prophesy about, or, or should we expect somebody else? Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you see in here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The situations are pretty similar in our two stories. These people in the crowd are realizing that Jesus is different than they thought he was going to be. That Jesus hadn't come to meet their physical needs. But he had come to to bring life. What he's telling them here is he had come to bring life by his death on the cross. And so in verse 62, Jesus starts to push down on it. He says, are you offended at this? Well, then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus says, you think you're offended now? You think you're offended now? Just wait a second. Wait till you see what it's going to take for me to ascend back into heaven because it is going to take me dying a gruesome death. It's going to take me dying a shameful criminal's death and being buried for three days dead. What then? How are you going to feel about it then? Folks, the gospel is offensive because it tells us that Jesus didn't come simply to bring victory and glory. Jesus didn't come simply to make your life better. He didn't come to make our dreams come true. Jesus' call to these people and his call to all people is take up your cross 
and follow me. The gospel, it doesn't cater to our desires. In fact, the gospel is the reverse of all of our instinctive desires. The gospel says that you have to lose your life to find it. It says you have to give up your desires to have them met. It says the road to victory is through defeat. The way to conquer is to serve. Jesus says to you, if you want to take part in me, you can't just have me as the icing on the cake of your life. I can't be your hobby. I can't be your fourth priority after the list of other things you want to get done. He says, if you want to find life in me, you have to die. Do you hear me? Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Do you know what that means? It means for you and for me that Jesus has not come to rubber stamp the plans that you've made for your life. He's come to be the Lord of your life. He's come to have the final word in everything that you think and everything that you say and everything that you do. And these people hear that and they get it. They hear it and they say, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can accept it? But maybe it's not hitting home with you. Maybe you're still thinking, well, this is an abstract idea. Finding life in Jesus. I still like that. I like the way that sounds. Jesus doesn't seem so bad. But I want to tell you, this isn't the only hard thing Jesus has to say to you. If you read this book, you're going to find out that he says a lot of hard stuff. Jesus has a lot of hard sayings that he wants you to follow. He doesn't just say, love your neighbor and turn the other cheek, which, by the way, aren't easy. (laughs) But we like to hear those things, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. That, That goes over fine with us. But he says, as Lord, I lay claim to everything in your life. Jesus tells us in this book that he wants control of your money, that he wants control of your sex life, that he wants control of your career, that he wants control of your kids' lives. The gospel tells us that he came and he laid down his life and now he calls us to come and abide in him. He laid down his life, he picked up his cross and now he says to you, take up your cross and follow. So maybe now you're standing with the crowd and you're saying, that's hard. That is a hard saying. Who can accept that? Well, I'm here this morning This is my job (laughs) to tell you that this is the greatest invitation you'll ever get. That even though this sounds off-putting at first, this is the best invitation any of us can ever accept because the alternative is awful. Maybe you're saying, no, it's not. I'm doing fine without Jesus. I I can live my life. I don't need a Lord of my life. I'll be the Lord of my life. But you know that's not true. You know, maybe you proclaim with that great poem, you know, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my soul. But you know that's not true. You can't live that way. You can try. But what always happens, what inevitably happens when you try to be your own master is that something or someone becomes your master. We always end up serving something. We always end up serving someone. 
If we say, I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be successful, then you end up a slave to your job or you end up crippled by envy of others who are doing better than you. If you say, I'm going to be loved and I'm going to be respected, then, then you end up mastered by the opinions of other people or filled with pride. If we say, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be moral, I'm going to be good without God, well, you end up trapped by your own self-righteousness, judging all those people who can't be good. Or riddled with guilt and fear, realizing what an imposter you are and how awful it would be if people found out what you were really like. You might think you're free, but you're not free. Jesus, when he demands our life, it's good news. Because the only alternative that we have is death. (laughs) The only alternative we have is death. And that's why when Jesus watches these crowds walk away, and he turns to the twelve, he looks at them and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, where are we going to go? There is nowhere else to go. There is literally nowhere else that I can go. Steve Brown is a pastor that I like to listen to sometimes, and and he told a great story about this that i got to share. He was talking about uh, getting ready for Hurricane Andrew in Florida a few years back, and he and his family had gone back to their home to to get ready and and weather out the storm, not knowing just how bad it was going to be. And he said as he got back, his neighbor Fred was just on top of it. Every window had been boarded up. The, the, the place was guarded like, like Fort Knox, and it was just, it was prepared. And meanwhile, here he is trying to scramble and get things ready. Um, and finally, when the storm came, it was, it was awful. It seemed like everything was shaking, like the whole house was going to fall apart. And he, he said to his wife, he was afraid, and he said, you know, they say in the middle of these storms, it calms down. In the eye of the storm, it gets calm. If, if we get to that part, we're going to run across and go to Fred's house because he has done a lot better job than we have. And so it happened. The eye of the storm passed right over them. And he's like, okay, here we go. And he opened up the door. And Fred's house was gone. We can try to run from Christ's call to follow. And don't get me wrong, sometimes I want to run. Sometimes... Following Jesus is hard. It can be really hard. You look around and you see people who are prospering. And you say, maybe that would be better. Maybe that life would be a little easier. Sometimes as, as if you're a Christian, you, you know you start to think this way. But if you're like Peter, if you have seen Christ's love, if you have experienced his grace. If you have known his spirit, whenever you try to run, whenever you open that door, whenever you try to go back to your sin, you got to realize there's nothing there. There's nothing there for you. There's nowhere that you can run. There's no other place where we can really find life. The cost of true discipleship is literally everything. It costs you every single thing that you have. 
But what you get is life, where all you had before was death. Jesus, he's the only one. He's the only one who has life. Well, that's what it costs. If that's what it is to be a real disciple, why do we want to do that? How are we going to do that? What is the reason for true discipleship? I don't want to finish this up without pointing out that this is a really sad scene. We know from Scripture that Jesus is is not uh, an unfeeling person. He's a man with a big heart. We read in Matthew how when he looks at crowds of people, it says that he has compassion on them. That his heart breaks for these people. His heart goes out to people because he knows that they're like sheep without a shepherd. That they're harassed and that they're helpless. Can you imagine what it felt like to be Jesus surrounded by thousands of people? And all of a sudden to see them turning away from him. One by one. And then the whole group. Thousands of people turning in the opposite direction and walking away from life itself. And not only that, this is a turning point in the Gospel of John. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of a road that for Jesus is going to lead down further and further until the cross, until his death, until he's in the ground. And I think that when Jesus turns to these disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? I don't think that's just for show. I think he was hurting. I think there was grief. I think there was pain. And it's just worth pointing out, Jesus is no stranger to our pain. Jesus knows what it's like to lose people. Jesus knows what it's like to say goodbye to people you love. You know, I had a tough week this week. I'm not sure how your weeks have been. I know I've talked to a few of you. But do you ever have just a tough week? You just feel down. You can't shake it. I felt like that all week. When I was prepping this sermon, I was trying to distract myself a little bit. And I opened up CNN to like read some news to procrastinate. And I ran across this story of a, mother, a grandmother who had found her five grandchildren dead. And I was just overwhelmed. The grief just like washed over me. I had to go home. You think, man, this world is hard. There's a lot of pain here. But you know, the Christian gospel, this message of Jesus is the only one, it's the only faith that says God cares about that. And not only does he care, but he knows what it's like. That he's been there, that he's felt every bit of pain that you feel. That he felt grief and here he needed comfort. And so Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter Never shy to speak. He says, Lord, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He says, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here. But even in this moment of of sorrow, Jesus takes this opportunity to remind him, of course you're not going to leave. But it's not because you've done anything here, Peter. It's not because you've done this. He said, did I not choose you? Did I not choose you? 
He says, you're not going to leave because I've guaranteed that you're mine. You're not going to leave because I have redeemed you. Don't you remember? We started out reminding ourselves of last week. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him. But whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. The gospel is so great because it tells us that Jesus is the one who does it all. He literally does it all by living a perfect life, by obeying all of God's commands and laws, by actually fulfilling the Ten Commandments. Not just avoiding the bad things, but doing the good things. And then he pays the penalty for our sin. On the cross, he bore the weight of every sin you've ever committed, and he removed the barrier between you and God. But not only that, it tells us that he calls us. He chooses us. He is the one who makes you into a disciple. He is the one who gives you life. Verse 63, it says it this way. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When Jesus called Peter, it was the Holy Spirit that made him follow. It was the Holy Spirit that had prepared his heart to hear that call and stand up and walk after him. When Jesus called those disciples, he put life in their dead souls. And so that means a few things. It means for us today that the call he he gives us now is not get your act together. Stop being a false disciple and start being a true disciple. It's not stop opening the door and trying to run away. It's not work harder. It's not do better. I mean, look who makes the profession. Look who it is who makes this statement that we're not going anywhere. Who is it? It's Peter. We know Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times, right? He he shows up in the book of Galatians and he's acting like a a self-righteous jerk. Jesus isn't just calling us to fix our behavior. He's calling us to repent of our sin and receive him. He's calling us to repent of our, our, our sin and receive his righteous life in place of our unrighteous life. He's calling us to turn from all those things that we're serving, to turn from death and turn to life. So I want to close by just asking you that question. Why are you here this morning? What are you doing in this room? Are you here because it's a nice place to be, full of nice people that you'd like to hang out with? Are you here because there's something that you can get out of it? Or are you here because you're looking for something real? Are you here because you want life? If that's you, I've got good news. It's here. And it's only here. It's nowhere else. It's here. It's on this table. Come and eat. Come and drink. And find your life in him. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful that the thing that distinguishes true and false disciples is not first what we've done to earn it. But it's whether or not you've called us. 
And Lord, I thank you that you show us time and time again that that call is going out even right now. That you are calling the people in this room to lay down their idols, to lay down those other masters and come to you. Father, I pray for a movement of your spirit right now, Lord. God, I pray that you would give us the heart to follow. Lord, I pray for anyone who might be here who's, who doesn't even know what we're talking about. It doesn't make any sense. I pray, God, that your, your spirit would open up their eyes and open up their ears to understand. Father, I pray for those people who aren't in this room with us this morning. People all around this building people who live on our streets who, who don't know you, who are looking for life, but all they have is death. Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts to reach out to them as well. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.